Hi, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic uh, for the purposes of this particular podcast, uh, the Letters Podcast. You can call me Rockmeister McCool. In fact, we That's, insist that you do. Well, you can insist. I, I insist. I will, I will let you address me however you like. You can call me whatever you like, including late for dinner. Yes, that joke is because I typically very new. Typically, don't have dinner. No, or, that's not good. Why not? You should, not? you should you should be feeding yourself and well, taking care but, of your needs. But I'm not hungry. Why should I eat? I'm not hungry. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, don't. First rule of thumb: Don't be like us. Second rule. <laughs> second rule. Here's how the We've Got Mail podcast works. You write us. There's two ways to do that. You can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is our email address. We read as many of those as we can, but we also have a PO box. That's right. Which uh, stands for a post office box and not a pissed off box. Uh, <laughs> that would be a PO'd box. <laughs> Uh, Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Uh, you can write us into the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep, and uh, we, we read those too. And uh, yeah, we, we, we always just like to dive right in mm-hmm. uh, to our letters as much as we can. And Whitney, as always, is in charge of that. Yep. So Whitney, what do we got today? Well, we got a few letters in our post office box. Wouldn't Ooh. you know it? I like how he uh, crinkles them a little bit up to the microphone. I want to make okay. sure that they hear. I, I have to pull it out of the envelope. Yeah. Here on mic, so we have a little bit of a yeah, a bit of a treat, am, uh, ambience, a bit of a treat listeners. for everybody. Yeah. And uh, this is a letter uh, written to us on paper, as you can hear from B. Peterson. Oh, your uh, co-host, like, and all about Ovid. All about Ovid. Um, uh, dear friends, as I write this, I approach a, I approach a significant anniversary just about one year ago on September 15th, 2020. I recorded my very first podcast. Wow. Uh, this, of course, was my sponsored episode of Your Critically Acclaimed, in which the three of us discussed lists of queer cinema recommendations. A couple of months later, I recorded a second podcast discussing over two dozen Quibi shows with Whitney for Cancel Too Soon. <laughs> Fast forward to January 1st, 2021, I'm launching an entire podcast network with a slate of five podcast series, and they focus on new, newly released independent films, the films of Dorothy Arzner and Rainer Werner Fossbinder and Lucrecia Martel and Frederick Wiseman. Fast forward again to today, and that same podcast network is all but ended. Almost all of the series are either complete or on an indefinite hiatus. The one remaining series, which is dedicated to Ovid, which I co-host, will be moving from weekly weekly episodes to monthly episodes after September. Curtailing it a little bit. Understood. And here's the thing. I think my infatuation with film is ebbing. Uh, This realization occurred over a month ago as I sat next to my friend and co-host Harold uh, in an independent theater in Austin, watching Rainer Werner Fassbender's The Marriage of Maria Brown, my very first screening of a film projected on film. Here I was, living out my fantasy, watching a classic art house picture on 35mm for the purpose of discussing cinema with friends, peers, and colleagues in a semi-professional fashion, and I felt whelmed. Not over, not under, just whelmed. Yeah. That's not to say that I no longer love the media, you know I do, but... Uh, For the past couple of months, I haven't been pulled to it the way I have been for years. I don't feel any need to touch my list of classic films I haven't seen that will be leaving the Criterion channel at the end of each month. I've seen maybe a half dozen new releases since June, and something oddly discouraging has started to happen during screenings. I'll involuntarily begin focusing on formulating talking points, stances, etc. for the films I'm only partway through, unable to just be swept away by the experience. 
Uh, on the other side of things, I've begun re-engaging with stuff I largely ignored for the last few years. I'm getting back into tabletop games, into Legos. I've been building tabletop game- games out of Legos. Ooh. I'm picking up books I, I, and read them for pleasure. I've picked up friends, other real-life human beings, and hung out with them for the same purpose. My family has noticed that I'm happy, almost giddy on the regular for the first time in a long time. Six months before I began my 100 Letters project, uh, you answered an email I wrote while I was in an anxious state. The episode is no longer findable, so here's an excerpt of what I wrote. A reminder, this was from May of 2019. Uh, Quote, It's been a stressful day, and it's prompted questions of dealing with anxiety, with all the stuff happening right now politically, specifically with abortions. It's all become overwhelming. My question to you is, what do films matter anyway, and how do they help anything? I don't remember much of what you said, although I do know that it was encouraging. And very specifically, I recall William saying something towards the end to the effect of, if you come to a place where films aren't super important to you anymore, that's okay. No one ever said they had to be. Go find what matters. Well, Bibbs, I'm taking your advice. Come October, I'm stepping away from a lot of what I've been engaging in for the last few years. I'll be off Twitter as much as possible. I think that's healthy. Yeah. Uh, I'll be letting myself off the hook for not seeing the thing that people are talking about or seeing anything for that matter if I don't feel moved to. But let's be honest, there's too much good stuff on Ovid to ignore completely. <laughs> uh, if I do watch anything, I'll be working on and not worrying about what uh, how I articulate my analysis of it into a microphone or a tweet. Mm. I'm going to help a close friend move into his first apartment. Maybe I'll start looking for my own somewhere outside of this COVID-ridden anti-science city that i live in and at some point i'm going to have to make a choice to start intentionally living my own life bibs whitney y'all have been uh seen me through two years of high school one year of college and 18 months of whatever the frick this is (laughs) my highest of highs and lowest of lows your voices have been there uh as my final closing night theater performance and after sitting in the back of a cop car at 1 a.m while on suicide watch uh, I remember sitting on the windowsill of my living room listening to your review of Ready Player One and being hooked. I remember mowing the lawn and listening to you answer my first letter about directors exploring the same subjects in different genres and being filled with glee. I remember sitting in a restaurant for the first time we interacted on Twitter about Tarkovsky and being starstruck. Uh, everything up to 20 hours, uh, driving 20 hours to L.A. to hang out with and record with you two it, at two in the morning. It's all been a blast. Uh, I think by now I've taken up enough real estate on this show, so we'll just end this with a... Thank you for your time. Sincerely, B. Peterson, and, and it's even signed by hand. Oh, that's official. Um, uh, uh, there's this is this is not a melancholy event. Um, no, it doesn't. Uh, and in and in fact, um, you and I, William, we we love film, and we made it into our business, and yeah. uh, we, we turned our hobby into a living. And mm-hmm. some would say that's a dream, and some would say that's a nightmare, and it can Sometimes, be a, it can be a little bit of both. I think they think it's a little bit of both, depending yeah. on what day of the week it is or what minute of the day it is. Yeah, yeah, and. Yeah. Uh, I, I still remember they very vividly uh, when the digital projector showing the human centipede two <laughs> froze on a shot of somebody getting their teeth ripped out. It was yep. just like a gory, awful <laughs> shot. One of the worst possible, yeah. like three possible shots that would be the worst thing to freeze yeah. on and in that the, movie. And they picked one of them. And, and yeah, it just, it froze there. And like, there was some glitch in the, in the projector. Yeah. And, and it stayed for a while. It's it like five, 10 and, minutes. Yeah. And I, I just sighed and said in full voice with other critics in the rooms, just saying, this is the life we chose. <laughs> We chose to be in this room so we could look at this gory show. And it's like, why are we doing this? It's like, oh, oh, right. I must love cinema. (laughs) (laughs) The idea that you have to remain a fan of one thing forever is uh, a byproduct of sort of the ascendancy of geek culture, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think oftentimes people think it means, oh, you you don't. Oh, I have to be a fan of Batman or whatever. It could be something really big. Mm. It could be a medium. It, it yeah. could be it could be an entire medium. It could be your whole town. Even like there's a million things that we like. Mm. 
love or hate that sometimes come to define us for a while. Mm-hmm. And that could be a year, a week, five years, 20 years, and then it's okay to move on. Life is way too short <laughs> to commit to something that's not really giving you any mm-hmm. joy. And uh, I've heard this and I've said this before, but the best way to be a, a, a better critic is to just become a more complete person yeah uh, live life meet people travel for god's sake explore read a lot other of, yeah, things read a lot of books the, these are the things that let you appreciate the art and sort of disappearing down one rabbit hole i mean you learn a lot but you're only in one rabbit hole aren't yeah. you and i think living a, a well-rounded life is grand yeah. uh and stepping away from film in general is not a sad thing if yeah. you're using that time to fill it with other things yeah you might find uh, your way back someday you might not. That's might, fine yeah, too. And, yeah, you can never watch. Yeah. Listen, listen. It, I assume that most of the people who are listening to our shows are probably at least somewhat interested in film and/or television, mm. because that's what we talk about ninety-eight percent of the time. Yeah, and that's something that really, really interests us, whether we love it or it pisses us off. We're still like fascinated by it. Um, but. Uh, yeah, you, 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 you don't have to be. <laughs> you know, we, 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 and honestly, like there have been moments where I've thought to myself, do I really want to do this? Is this really giving me what I want? Uh-huh. And there are times when I've said, no, honestly. Mm-hmm. And then, but I kept doing it for a while because I was like committed to it. And then I found my love again for it. And then it all worked out. But, uh, you know, there there are also times when I've looked at my love for uh, cinema, art, whatever, mm. and I realize that what I used to love about it isn't what I love about it now, or the way yeah. that I make it my career isn't necessarily the way I want to make it my career now. Uh, moving more and more into podcasting mm. was a big part of this. Uh, it's something that I enjoy doing more than a lot of like the inner office bullshit that comes with a yeah, lot of, of, of the be, being of, an editor and that kind yeah, of stuff. Being yeah. an editor was, is a hard gig and it's especially in the, in the environment in which we are now where you don't actually have as much control as you would want in order well, to I'm, actually, you know, budgets are shit. Yeah. You know, like you it and sucks. I, uh, you and I entered the game. Uh, unfortunately, just as budgets were being like halved and quartered and just cut, yeah. cut to ribbons. So, we were able to make a little bit of money if we for wrote a couple of years. For yeah. a couple of years, uh, if we wrote a lot, yeah. like a huge volume of, of stuff, we could actually like supplement our other jobs. It was never my main job. I've never no. been able to make a living just writing, and uh, yeah. yeah, and then we kind of found that every the bottom sort of fell out when everything quote pivoted to video. Yeah. Uh, p- I guess it's, pivot, it's incredibly difficult to make a living at this yeah. and nothing else. P- pivot to video is like. Uh, and then the war came for yeah. uh, for film critics. Uh, I was a great big hero until I took an arrow in the knee. Yeah, a video game yeah. reference, but like, yeah, it's just like it, it's the entire industry took an arrow. Like yeah. it was just basically like, oh shit, okay, well, I guess no one's making any money at this anymore. So Never mind. we we've continued to push on just out of sheer obstinacy <laughs> in, in certain <laughs> cases, but uh... it kind of is because honestly, I think about it, and it, for me, what it boils down to is there are times when, listen, we you mentioned it, like we turned our hobby into a job. Mm. There's a certain joy in that, and that you get to keep doing what you're really interested in, you know, all the time. Mm-hmm. But the downside is it's still a job. 
Yeah. And a job, I don't care how much you love your job, sometimes it's just a job. There's always <laughs> some part of it mm. that's just a job. Yeah. Like, no one likes doing, like, a, some, some element of it. The paperwork. Mm. You know? Taking out the trash. There's always some bullshit element of every job that's the reason you get paid for it. Mm. Because otherwise, you'd do it for free. Like, there's got to be some bullshit thing that, that is actually effort and sucks. <laughs> so, and yeah, so, it, like, it, and so, like, there are times when that is, that makes it not worth it. Yeah. And, uh, and if, and if that, and if that thing, Thing is, I don't enjoy movies as much as I used to. There you go. Yeah, What's uh, the point then? Uh, it's way too hard to make to do this and to like commit your time to it because it's a lot of time, yeah. even if you're not well, making any money. And it's even harder to make a living at it that if you're not enjoying it, do something else, please. Well, and, and also uh, to to address you directly, B, and and we'll yeah. talk because yeah. we, we're still talking about off it. Yeah, um, good. But, um, there's also the temptation, uh, thanks to social media, to sort of brand yourself. Yeah, that everybody's social media presence is like the brand of themselves. It's such a natural yeah. part of social media. We don't even talk about it much anymore. Yeah, there's a certain version the, the ver- of you. The you version present. of you you present yeah. is is your brand, and people are going to come to you because they're interested in what you're selling. You've become a product, and yeah. when you put yourself in a position where you are consuming film in order to feed that brand rather than your heart, yeah you might be going about it the wrong way. Now, some yeah. people can survive that way and, and yeah. thrive that way. Some people are happy but, yeah. to just only focus on, like, one thing. I know a lot mm. of people who mostly watch just, like, what we would call the show down inner geekdom stuff, you know, mm. your your major movie franchise. And they're very, very happy with that, and more power to them. Me, I go nuts if I don't at least watch something that's just for me once a week. <laughs> like, we just, like, earlier tonight, we just like, we just need to throw something on that has nothing to do with anything. Mm. And we watched the original Angels in the Outfield oh, there you with go. Janet <laughs> Lee. And... That movie is charming. <laughs> that movie's really good. That movie holds up great. And I never I'd never seen it before. I'd seen like the Disney one or whatever the remake was and it kind of sucked. But like there was this was great. Yeah. And I never would have watched it because there was no reason to. Like there was no I couldn't manufacture a reason to see Angels in the Outfield for work. I had to take a moment and just see this movie just for fun. Yeah. You know? Yeah, um, yeah on, a, on a weekly basis, uh, just about my my wife and I try to watch really I mean, streaming services has all all kinds of horrendous dregs and like really ch- yep. chintzy B movies. So we we put a bunch in a bag. I mentioned this on our Batman podcast. Yeah, just f- choose a bunch of random titles like from the Shout Factory or from Tubi. Yeah, and, and schlock. Just, yeah, a lot of schlock. We put yeah. a, uh, we have a little bag of schlock and we pull pull out <laughs> three films at random and we usually get about through two of them before we pass out because we're having cocktails. Sure, but uh, yeah, that's that's it's fun. Sort of, we can watch movies for enjoyment, and yeah. that's something that we we don't get to do re- uh, very much. As professionals, um, t- B, B, I admire mm. that uh, mm. you you tried to make money out of it. You tried to make a brand out of it, but it's it's a hard road to hoe, and uh, yeah. it, it's it's fine to step back and realize that your relationship to a film is is changing, and you yeah. are growing, and you're becoming a different person. And I want to make something abundantly clear: mm. uh, what B. Peterson did with mm. the screen's margins. You should be very proud of. Absolutely, that, that's a, those, that, that's a great, great channel. And those I'm will glad those, always those podcasts will always be recorded. And yeah, that's something you yeah. did. Yeah, and they'll always say seriously, hang on to those hard drives, even if you choose not to have the podcast available. Like that, that there's good stuff there, mm. and I think that the screens margins filled a really exciting uh, uh, little gap in a lot of the podcasting universe. And I, you know, it, it takes a long time for a podcast to build an audience. It took us several years oh, yeah. before we had anything even remotely resembling a decent audience. Um, and, and not, not decent as in we weren't super happy with everyone who was with us, but like a size that was like noteworthy, mm. um, in, in the industry. But, um, that's great work. Mm. 
that it seriously if you haven't listened it's all there and one of the cool things about a lot of stuff that uh, B Peterson did with with all of uh uh all of their their collaborators you and Mark Hoyk and all the others and mm. a lot of them were kind of self-contained so yeah. like there's this entire incredible retrospective of the work of Dorothy Arzner yeah that's yeah. just there that's done that's that's yeah. a complete boxed set <laughs> of great retrospective material yeah you know that's awesome so you, I hope you're very proud. You should be very, very proud. And yeah, if you're finding more joy elsewhere, follow that. Go for it. I assure you, life is, again, life is really, really short. The older I get, the more I realize how short it is. <laughs> yeah. And if you're, if you're not following something that is giving you, you know. The, 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 some uh, kind of nourishment. Some, yeah. some reason to wake up today and go, yeah, let's do it. Like, you, 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 should, you should be doing that. Mm. That's what you should be doing. And if... If that changes, change with it. Mm. Go for it. And seriously, thank you so much for joining us. And it's it's been an honor to work with you. Absolutely. It has been an honor. Yeah. To, it's been an honor to consider you uh, 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 not just not just a, a listener, but a but a but a pal. Mm. So thank you. Uh, and we do need to yield the floor to other people. But mm. thank you so much, and thank you for writing in yeah. again. And um, best of luck on everything. Absolutely. I know you're gonna be, and, and, I know you're gonna be great at it. Stay in touch. Yeah. Uh, that, that's all we re- request. Um, yes. We got another uh, wonderful package in our P.O. box. And yeah. this wasn't just a letter. This was a gift. This comes from Canadian Keith. And this is one of the, like, Franklin Press, if you remember these, mm. uh, like, big leather-bound edition with the gold leaf on the side, uh, edition of Little Women. This is Louisa May Alcott. really, um, really nice. But we do not deserve this. Yeah. Well, we do not these, deserve uh, I'm honored I, uh, we do not deserve we, we, this. No, we do not. Um, no, we, um, this is really, really I'm not pretty. sure if you remember uh, these Franklin Press. Like I, was, the, I was really young when they were coming yeah, out, but they, I do uh, remember seeing them around. Like, people, like adults I knew had them. Yeah. And yeah. they were really, really fancy they and were, nice. I know we had a couple of them, but I don't remember what we had i think i have i think i got an anna karenina once um i think we i think we might have had what an anna karenina i got an odyssey once um i think but, we had some jane austen i think we might have had an Edgar Allan. oh we think we had an Edgar Allan poe nice i think i think yeah, we, they, i could be remembering it wrong but i think it, so. in the 80s and the, they were laughed at when they came out these like big mm-hmm. thick it's like why i'll just get the paperback of, yeah. of little women why would I spend all of this money on these things? And, and the, the ads that you saw on television mm-hmm. assured you, no, no, these are going to be collector's items. These are really expensive mm-hmm. now, and they're just going to go up in value. And you know what? Franklin was right, yeah. and that makes me a little mad. You know, we, we, we've <laughs> they this... put out these uh, collector's editions that were meant to increase in value, and they kind of did. Well, again, we're looking at this thing now where, like, look, even like in film, like in streaming, mm-hmm. where a lot of things are readily, readily available. Mm-hmm. Some things are not, which sucks, but a lot of things are really readily available. But they're, they're also... Like watching a movie on like Tubi with commercials, or even on like a streaming service or whatever, is is sort of like the mass market paperback. You're still getting the stuff, mm. but it's to have it in your hand. Yeah, you know, to own it with like a nice cover that looks nice on a shelf. There's something really special about that. I think they'll always have value to people, and mm. as it becomes more and more mass market paperback out there, I think that a lot of companies like Criterion or Vinegar Syndrome or Shout, what they do is hitting the smaller group of people who value that stuff all that much more, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we love it that much more. So this is gorgeous, by the way. I just, yeah, I just, this is a really wonderful edition here. Yeah. The little ribbon. Yeah. Uh, that does have bookmark. a note. 
Uh, it comes with a letter. Let's do um, it. It says, dear, this comes from Canadian Keith, uh, dear Bibiani and Mr. McCool, uh, it's on, on paper here. Nice. Um, you guys don't make enough podcasts. I know. Well, you probably do for most people, but not for someone like me who can <laughs> listen to whatever they like for 50 plus hours a week while working. For someone like me, you can never make enough podcasts. And while I'll always keep up with my top 10 podcasts, I started looking elsewhere for things to supplement them. And last October, I discovered something that has changed my life. LibriVox. Hmm. It's a group of volunteers who read and record written works in the public domain. That's awesome. Creating free audiobooks. And they have a massive completed catalog. Over the years of listening to you guys, I sense a love for and deep knowledge of the Western canon of classic literature, and I finally wanted to discover just what I am missing. So I created a list of the most important ancient texts focusing on Western and specifically uh, English language works uh, that started at the beginning of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. After a year of listening, I'm thrilled to finally be moving into the 1700s. So that gets me to my question. Uh, number one, are there significant works that you have read prior to the explosion of novels in the late 1700s that I've missed on my list? And here's the list. Okay. Uh, I'm going to wow. hand it to you. Uh, number two, what are your favorite books or authors, particularly of, for, of those in the public domain? <laughs> and three, can you guys just talk more about books? <laughs> I get excited every time you graze against the subject, but you rarely discuss your reading habits or your favorite authors and works. I enclosed a copy of Little Women. Hopefully that will motivate Rockmeister to finally get around to reading it. Yes. Your faithful listener, Canadian Keith. Yeah, this is a big hole in my literary yeah, we, education. I, I talked about to Louisa May Alcott. I talk about Little Women a lot. It was my number one movie of the year, the year the new Greta Gerwig came out. Although, in retrospect, I would probably put it at number two in Portrait of Lady on Fire, number one. But regardless, it's a great adaptation. Yeah. Um, and when we talked about it, Whitney had Whitney, who's better read than I am overall. Like in terms of the Western uh, canon, I've read some books. In, in terms of the Western canon, you're a more avid reader than I am, especially nowadays. And uh, it was surprising that you hadn't. And mm. so I really hope this gives you an opportunity to just sit down in a nice yeah. chair and <laughs> read a chapter a night or something, because that's one of my favorite books. Um, yeah, the, the um, when it comes to the 18th century in literature, mm. um, that's those that right before kind of the novel boom like the Mm -hmm. 19th century is where like a lot of the most famous novels Mm -hmm. come from at least that are read in the united states and and europe um i understand you know world literature is has been a uh the the list of what the canon is has been hotly contested because it's you know a lot of dead white men as as the saying goes and uh uh, but yeah, in, in the 19th century, that's when you got, you know, Jane Austen and you got Dickens and you got uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky mm-hmm. and all of these really important authors. Uh, it, and prior to that, novels weren't um, as as prolific. It wasn't uh, it was the same market out it, there. There was, well, it was, there was, there it was different the same things. format. Um, yeah. And a lot of it has to do with uh, candle technology. Yeah. Uh, can- candles used to be made out of beef tallow, and those would burn down super fast. And when your, call- your candle burns down and it's late at night, you go to bed. You can't do anything else. Uh, once they started making candles out of beeswax, those things can burn most of the night. And wouldn't you know it, people stayed up and were actually writing more yeah. so that that saw a big uh, explosion of of uh, yeah. writing of we novels have, yeah yeah it's weird to think about like um, how difficult it must have been to just to do anything at night for most of human history yeah and and there's all these studies as to how sleeping habits have changed how being constantly exposed to light has changed our brains some would say for the the worse mm. um uh, anyway uh for 17th century novels they they or excuse me, uh, 18th century novels, 1700s. Mm. They uh, they don't quite resemble the the corkers that we're used to reading. Mm, they're, no, you, know, they're, you you don't find somebody like Dickens. You'll find 
precursors to Dickens and an author named uh, Fanny Burney. Mm. And Fanny Burney uh, wrote romances with the titles Mm. like Evelina and Cecilia. Yeah. And I've read, uh, I've read Fanny Burney and Fanny Burney is dreadfully dull. A lot of the, Uh, a lot of the early stuff isn't really like what we would consider today a page turner. mm Mm-hmm. I suspect that's because, I mean, I, at least part of it, um, is because I feel like a lot of uh, novels, a lot of books, and I even notice this in comics, even, um, over the last half century or century or so, have become a bit more cinematic. You know, yeah, we're used um, to seeing things with incident, things hmm. play out in front of us. Um, one thing, I was talking to my, my partner, I'm Lampas de Silva, about this, and they were talking about how, you know, it used to be more common in books to see people talk about things that you can't experience in the cinema, like how, how things smelled. Yeah. You yeah. know, how things felt to touch. That used to be way more, like, significant. You, we would, like, use more words, more description to create a sense of place through for the entire senses, hmm. rather than just say what things look like. Uh, And I think that happens a lot now. And also what was going on sort of in a person's backstory. We just talk about that a lot more. Yeah, to just Uh, create this mm. giant... There was less shorthand Mm. uh, for all this uh, stuff. And like, so like, yeah, a lot of it was like really rich, dense text. That was something my dad pointed out to me. How um, uh, He he pointed out to me, he's he's a big detective fiction fan. He likes uh, hard-boiled detective novels. He showed me one of his favorite books. It started with, uh, I woke up in my office and a rat was taking a piss in my coffee. Like, that's yeah. the kind of stuff he likes. Um, but yeah, he pointed out to me that a lot of writing is a lot more visually oriented since the inception of film. So, you know, a man was standing on a, a, a hilltop and he was shrouded in darkness yeah. and you couldn't see him. And then a single shaft of light hit his eye. And it's like, you're writing a screenplay. You're not mm-hmm. writing a novel. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, uh, 18th century. Um, Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy Gentleman. Uh, it's a favorite of mine. Yeah. Uh, just a, as as the popular uh, criticism goes, it, it's a postmodern novel before there was even a modern. Be, <laughs> uh, um, Robinson Crusoe's a eighteenth uh, century novel. Gulliver's Travels a seventeenth century novel. I keep saying it, seventeen hundreds novel. Um, Fanny Burney. I haven't read Tom Jones, uh, the Henry Fielding novel. Uh, that's another hole in in my education. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Voltaire. Read Voltaire, ah. read Candide. I think Candide is an incredibly significant text uh, in that... Uh, have you read, you've read Candide? Uh, no, actually, I haven't read Candide. Okay. Um, uh, Candide, or Optimism, uh, it's... tries to... Uh, pre- it presents Candide as sort of this this uh, fool who suffers as, as he goes about his, um, his adventures, and... He believes in the philosophy that the world is perfect the way it is. This sort of like takes like a Christian doctrine to the extreme. If there's a benevolent God, he made the world a benevolent place. And if you experience something in this world, it's it's for the greater good. It's the it's the best possible. We live in the best possible world. Right. And of course, the, the joke is, you know, Voltaire, who's trying to deconstruct that, has him suffer at the hands. And while he's still remains cheery and optimistic as he is suffering. And that's sort yeah. of the, the gag in Candide. Um, but at the same time, you know, by the, the end of the book, when everybody's kind of like retired to a farm and they're a little bit okay with the world, they've kind of come to peace with the world the way it is, <coughs> suffering and all. And it, it sort of realize, it, it pushes philosophy into... Uh, a much more benevolent mindset. So I think in a way it is 
selling the philosophy that is uh, seeking to tear down at the same time. It's, you know, just a, a really brilliant look at um, mm. the way we tend to experience the world. And, you know, what with like social media in the modern age, we're getting these constant flows of negativity mm. and things that yeah. are meant to engage with our outrage receptors. Yeah. Because that's what social media does. That's mm. the way the AI has come to work. Mm. Uh, I find it interesting that looking at a terrible world as the best possible one can actually be a very positive experience I was in, the, uh, in this bizarre sort of way. I was, uh, uh, in a roundabout way, reminds me of one of the greatest experiences I ever had. It was in an elevator. Mm. And who walks into the elevator but Carlos Santana. Okay. Was that a, was that a fancy hotel in, in L.A.? I was there for a work thing. And a lot of famous people lived there or you know visited there. So Carlos Santana happened, I guess, was staying at the hotel. Mm-hmm. Carlos Santana walks into the elevator. And he's just sitting there. He's just standing there being Carlos Santana. And I'm not going to bother Carlos Santana. <laughs> we don't know Carlos Santana, one of the greatest guitar players of all time, one of the most successful musicians of the 20th century. Um, great, great musician. But the person next to me had no qualms about bothering Carlos Santana. <laughs> and so he was like, Carlos Santana, I'm such a big fan. And Carlos Santana's like, thanks. Very, very, very nice gentleman. And the guy has, what a question to ask someone out of the blue. It's like, he just asked, like, what's the secret, man? What's 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 your secret? And Carlos Santana had the answer to this, and it's, it's such an incredible uh, bit. He said, uh, "The secret is to is to love what you have. Mm. That's it. Okay. To love, want what you have. Mm. Don't spend all your time thinking about stuff you don't have. Enjoy what you got. Yeah, and that's great advice. And I think that's <laughs> I think it's true. Like things are often often bad, and like you mm. want to make them better, and you will, but." To appreciate what you have in front of you and what you have right now, that's hard to do, and I find myself struggling with that a lot. <laughs> Frankly, that's kind of that's the kind of shit, that kind of level of like low level constant anxiety over gotta do stuff constantly, gotta constantly improve surroundings, gotta constantly work, 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 work. That makes it so they have a harder time finding time to read lately. Yeah, over the last yeah, several, quite a few years, actually, I just have read less and less and less, and I'm a little embarrassed by it, to be frank. Yeah, um, it's, it's and for me, it's just snippets when I can. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to go through. I mean, you're a parent uh, now. I mean, come I mean on. yeah, it's, like, it's that's all, hard. You know? When uh, when my son was a baby, I was still trying to keep up with sort of my reading habit, and uh, I, I read him um, Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Women <laughs> when he was. When he was an infant, so well, like, he, I'm he holding, to hear your voice. So, yeah, that's easy that's, to hear the yeah, that's, humanity. He just yeah. wanted to hear it, and you know, he had yeah. giving him some words. So why not read him a, yeah. a classic work of feminism? Uh, yeah. yeah, I ran into a thing. I, I you had me babysit Henry once, just you needed to go out for a little bit. Yeah. And um, this was back when Henry was a baby. He was very very young, and uh, he was like uh, he was like one and a half, and like one and a half, still very very young. And like we were just trying to like you know just be calm and chill with them, and mm-hmm. so like uh, we were trying to like just sort of sing. Like it was me and Michelle and we were just trying to sing. We realized that well, all of a sudden when there's actually like a kid in the room, you can't remember the lyrics to anything. Oh gosh. So you just end um, up singing commercial jingles or crappy songs the, that you knew from forever ago <laughs> because that's all you can think of. Yeah. Uh, like, all that matters is that you're singing. When 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 Henry was like, my, my son Henry, yeah. when he was uh, like maybe two or three days old, like he's still, yeah. still a brand new infant and I'm up in the middle of the night because that's what you do with babies. Yeah. And I wanted to sing him a lullaby. Yeah, your head empties. Yeah. It's like I can't remember Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Yeah. But I did remember a late night double feature from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> that is so, such a perfect moment for episode. That's beautiful. And uh, and the juicy fruit jingle. <laughs> Get Take your flamethrower on, grab a stick of juicy fruit. Um, anyway, we're off topic. Back, uh, back to back to novels. Um, uh, no, yeah, 1700s. Uh, also, um, 
Boswell bi- Boswell's biography of, jo- of Samuel Johnson. There you go. It's it's hugely long. Get yourself a lot of Earl, Earl Grey tea and just you know, charge mm. through that sucker. Yeah. Um. I I have fewer recommendations in this era. Um. From that particular century, I was just trying to like jog my memory. Like, what if I? Because if, if you told me like this book I read was in the 1600s or the 1700s, I'd have said sure. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there were certain books that like my parents were very well read, and they were like, you have to you you won't. We won't let you out into the world until you've read these books. And so, like, for example, A Journey of the Plague Year. I'm sorry, A Journal of the Plague Year mm. uh, by Daniel Defoe, uh, which is about the time a fuck-off plague hit London in 1665. And mm. it's just about that year. Mm. And I think about that book a little more lately. <laughs> it's It's been weird how everything suddenly changes really fast and your entire environment, your every the world around you completely right. shifts. And that might be good for uh, a contextualization. Um, but uh, I mean, a lot of the stuff I read though, that was older, that was only being public domain now uh, was older, older, like, yeah, like uh, yeah well, like uh, the Machi- like Machiavelli's The Prince. Oh, okay. Which is a work it's, of satire, by the way. Medieval, yeah. It's medieval. It's a work of satire, mm-hmm. by the way. It's not actually like a list of like mm-hmm. good recommendations for leadership. It's a, it's like, you know, it's like the Ferengi rules of acquisition. Like you're not supposed to take them super seriously. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to go, that's not good. It's, I suppo- see what- it's supposed to read as completely unethical behavior. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now, and some people wildly misinterpreted over the years. But if you can keep that in your head, it's a really fascinating read. Um, Chaucer, I got really into when okay. I was when I was uh, in school, and there was oh, I'll give me Chaucer. Okay, great. Actually, Chaucer is fucking weird. Like Chaucer is bawdy and violent yeah, um, and kind of exciting. There, there are a few uh, wonderful uh, collections of like a col- a Chaucer is a collection of stories, and the the premise of uh, the Canterbury well, the, the Canterbury Tales, Tales is anyway. Yeah, you know, the Canterbury Book sorry. of the Duchess, not so much, but like you know, uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, the Canterbury Tales is. Uh, People telling stories to one another, so it's a collection yeah. of tales. Yeah, and they're I've, on a pilgrimage, and mm-hmm. they're just keeping themselves busy by telling stories, and everyone's story is wildly different. Um, I'm a more of a Decameron man. Oh, uh, you would have said. Giovanni Boccaccio did a, a, a similar structure where yeah. um, people, in order to escape a plague, go out to the Italian countryside, and they, you know swim and they're run naked a lot and there's a lot of sex going on and each one of them uh, I think there's, there's ten of them will tell mm-hmm. ten stories apiece so it's a, a book of a hundred stories mm-hmm. um, I, I much prefer the Decameron right. to the Canterbury Tales uh, there's a, like a, just a, I think there's just a little bit more variety in the tales same with yeah. uh, I've read Shahrazad 1001 yeah. Nights there you go um, that is excellent my dad was very very big on he was a Roman history buff in particular right. and uh uh, there was always this idea that uh, you won't you won't fully be a man until you've read the works of Tacitus, kind oh, of thing. God. Not not like be a man in like a toxic way. Just like you won't be an adult. You, you won't will, you won't understand how life works. Until you you read Tacitus. You will read Cicero and you will like it. Kinda. That was the vibe. Um, all of that stuff is really interesting, though. It's just it's just a bit dry. Um, I took well, uh, compared to what we're used to. With well, it's also lit. it's also essays, you know, yeah. like it's it's histories, and some of the histories are bullshit. Like it's like, well, like did you know, like if you go past Germania, there are people who are half horse, and I'm like, no, Tacitus, that's not a hundred percent true. Uh, if if you're interested in in ancient ancient histories, like that is histories that were written in ancient times. Yeah, uh, there's Thucydides and there's Xenophon, uh, and Thucydides. Um, Oh, I'm totally going to mix this up. and there's gonna be some, our, our target there's, demo knows the difference and is going to be mad there, at somebody, you Somebody's going to write in and get this wrong. But <laughs> what, between uh, Thucydides and Xenophon, uh, one of them was uh, 
was basing it more on sort of like a, a general knowledge and like visiting um, like ancient places and sort of getting a, a general sense. And the other one wanted like eyewitness information, like actually yeah. tried to do it a little bit more scientifically. Yeah. And, uh, and as such, there are two different views. I think Thucydides was the former and Xenophon was the latter. But um, uh-huh. if I if I mix that up, I apologize. I'll, I'll, I'm going to make a deal here. If anyone can find another like podcast or online show uh, starring people from the Schmodown this week, mm. that came out this week, that references <laughs> Thucydides. What was it? Thucydides. Thucydides and Xenophon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we will we will send that Schmodown competitor or, or producer. We'll send them a, a Coke. Uh, <laughs> we'll I've, send I've, them a, a beverage because I've, I've read both. We can we, we can't possibly be the only one. It's, it's been uh, it's been a while since I've read Thucydides and Xenophon, so they're not crystal clear in my head. I love you so much, Whitney. Uh, <laughs> you never know what's going to come up on this. I've just, damn I've show. just read, read read a lot of old books. Um, anyway, uh, to recommend. Um, Will Durant said that um, Tolstoy is the ring at which you must grasp mm. in order to pull yourself up to get to Dostoevsky. And it's uh, <laughs> a great line. Yeah, uh, delivery too. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he thought you know, Tolstoy is very important. It's it's daunting. It's a cliche. It's the punchline of a lot of jokes. But read War and Peace. Yeah. Uh, read both uh, epilogues. You know, it's 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 uh, massive. It's gigantic. I like Anna Karenina better, but yeah, Anna Karenina is great. Uh, it's just a just this towering piece of literature that you would reward yourself by going through. Um, but after you've done Tolstoy, get to Fyodor Dostoevsky because that's the same thing, but uh, more intimate, a lot more readable, and with a lot of like really hard hitting philosophy mixed mm-hmm. into it. Oh, crime and punishment uh, was a game. Crime and crime and punishment yeah. is awesome. Yeah, and, really amazing. And, uh, text, Brothers yeah. Brothers Karamazov is awesome. Uh, uh, are those seventeen hundreds? No, I think those are those are eighteen yeah, hundreds. But, 18, 1800s, yeah. but, but he, still, he, um, Canadian Keith also asked like favorite books or authors. So okay. Oh, just gonna, in general. Just in general. Um, so I'm going to say Dostoevsky. Um, okay. Uh, I'm. I've always been a big fan. I, I, I like my stuff pulpy. I'm a huge fan of Patricia Highsmith. Uh, I recently talked about, I think, uh, uh, I, I don't know if the episode's actually gone live by the time this episode has, but our latest episode of Holy Batman, we talk a bit about the Algonquin Roundtable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these people wouldn't be in public domain yet, I think, but uh, the works of James Thurber, Robert Benchley, Dorothy Parker, and Alexander Wolcott in particular yeah. were hit, very, very hit formative me that to me. List, that list of audio oh, books yeah, that yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. to you. you there's, yeah, lot, this is like a double-sided piece of paper here. Yeah. Um, middle, early, modern English. Um, the best books I've ever read. Uh, Moby Dick. I mean, I'm, again, okay. I know that's a cliche, but I love Moby Dick. Um, no. The Divine Comedy is one of the best things That's, ever ever produced by humanity. Yep, it helps. You need um, cliff notes on that one, but yeah, you you, you it's need a lot. So of, it's owned to its own it's, pop culture. It's really like, really, it's really dense, but yeah. yeah, it's it's so much. First of all, it's three books. It's not just the Inferno, yeah, and there's a lot of things structurally and philosophically going on in in the Divine Comedy. Um, yeah. Please, please, please read the Divine Comedy. Uh, it, you'll be nothing but rewarded. And if you're like me, and you and you're an asshole who likes challenge. Um, force yourself through without any cliff's notes. Just mm. push through as as hard as you can. James Joyce's Ulysses. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> I haven't had the courage yet to do Finnegan's Wake. Okay. Uh, James Joyce said Finnegan's Wake incorporates every work of literature that preceded it, mm-hmm. and I haven't read all of those first, so okay. I need to read every other book first. 
so I haven't gotten to Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> it's going to be a bit. He, he even it's going to be a wild. He also read, <laughs> rather infamously said it took me 16 years to write it. It should take you 16 years to read it. <laughs> like fuck you, James Joyce. Seriously, but I, fuck you, James but I, I, I read I read Ulysses, uh, and that that was another one of the more rewarding yeah. literary experiences of my life. I, yeah. I needed some an audiobook to help me through a few sections, like the yeah. uh, the the Molly Bloom section at the end where there's no punctuation. Yeah, helps if you have a narrator. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Hmm. Uh, my favorite, my favorite books. I'm trying to think. Uh, my definitely in my top two are Little Women, which you know mm. we now have. Thank you. Uh, and Pride and Prejudice. Uh, probably my two favorite novels of all time. Mm. Uh, more contemporarily, Good Omens, very different, obviously, but it was just it meant yeah. a lot to me. Um, yeah. But I've, yeah, those are those are you know those are easily my top two yeah, of like 20th century novels. Um, uh, when I was a teenager, I was just reading Star Trek novels. <laughs> it's yeah. like those kind of, and you know, funny science fiction like Douglas Adams. I really mm-hmm. like Double, Douglas Adams and Kurt Vonnegut. Um, but that's, but that's like a lot of high school kids read yeah. those books. There's nothing wrong with that, but yeah, no, uh, no, it's um, totally. You know, just it's mm-hmm. it's a. Uh, it's a, it's. I don't want to call it a phase. Yeah, it's more then, of a uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, 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 phase. They don't stop being good, but yeah. hit, there comes a point where those are particularly exciting to you. I yeah. think whether that's the same time in your life that might vary, but like there's, mm-hmm. it, it's like a, ooh, Vonnegut, uh, and. Uh, Vladimir Nabokov is one of the greatest of uh, authors of the 20th century. Um, I've I've read Pinin, I've read Pale Fire, I've read Speak Memory, and I've also read Lolita. And yeah. Lolita is a great work of literature, but I really hesitate to recommend it <laughs> because yeah, because it's it's me. been it's been unfortunately uh, rather fetishized. And um, yeah, but that's it. It's actually uh, in in an afterword in the book, uh, Nabokov said. Uh, that it, it was the he wrote Lolita as a love story, not between an adult and a child, but between mm-hmm. himself and the English language. Yeah, uh, he loved I, weird he that he had language. to use that story to tell that story. Uh, a little odd, but you know, it, it is. Yeah. A, he he saw this like this weird sort of fetishization mm-hmm. of youth and was trying to sort of sat, satirize it yeah. with Lolita because Humbert's a creep. He's never yeah, seen he's a monster. He, he clearly thinks of himself as this, you know very uh cultured cosmopolitan european with uh you know with a lot of uh brains but he's, mm. he's really he's just a predator yeah, he's a monster and and nabokov depicts him that way yeah. uh and and just the language he uses to depict to you know show what america looked like in the, in at that time was just pretty yeah. pretty gorgeous well anyway um i think we got to move on but hopefully that helps sorry i could talk about no no it's fine we, re- we really do want to make room for at least a few more letters uh but uh because yeah we've we've we're 40 minutes into this thing we've only done two so let's let's try to let's try to let's try to work a little pick faster the, maybe we'll go a little, little longer than usual we'll try to add in a few more but thank you again mm-hmm. that means a lot to us and seriously enjoy enjoy the mm-hmm. the journey that's a great, great journey to be on. It's a lot of books. It's all, yeah, and just continue to read. Read, yeah. read old things. Yeah, uh, you will only benefit from it. Uh, here's a letter from Rock Eric McFusco. Nice, <laughs> uh, gentle beings. First off, thank you for the recommendation of Video Drew's podcasts. Oh, good. Uh, I've always enjoyed Lon Harris on Twitter and in the Schmodown, but he's even better in long form. And well, Drew is always a delight. Wonderful people. Uh, what is is it called? Garmon Shozia, their David Lynch podcast. I, I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, the reason for my letter today is something that occurred to me while listening to another movie podcast. Gasp! Uh, You're allowed, listeners. We have an open relationship. Please. Uh, 
where the hosts Please. referred to their days working at video stores. That seems like a common experience of the majority of movie podcast hosts, yeah. stand-up comics, and filmmakers these days, famously at Whitney's Boss. Um, I work for Quentin Tarantino. Yep. Uh, even though we have seemingly endless access to media via streaming, you pointed out that there are uh, many films not available online, RIP not on Disney+. Plus. So my question to you is this, where will the next generation of filmmakers and critics get access to the same variety of movies that have influenced today's creators, or will their, their development be hindered by the gatekeepers at Netflix, Disney, HBO Max, and Tubi? Tubi, mm. sweet Tubi. How do I adore you? Let me count the ways. Uh, looking forward to your insights. Sincerely, Rock Eric McFusco. <laughs> yeah, this is interesting because it's it's just a shift, really. Like, in some respects, streaming is superior to a lot of what people had in video stores. Because let's be honest here, we like to romanticize the video store experience. And it's easy for us to, because we lived in L.A. Yeah, we had, we had a good, lot of them. Yeah. Not only were there a lot, but they were good ones. And the blockbusters and the Hollywood videos, they mostly took over the smaller ones, but they weren't able to completely take over. And so, although right so now, they, they it's were, most, they were just options yeah, in yeah. a wider marketplace. And now there's really only one left. It's cinephile on mm. uh, Santa Monica Boulevard, which is still going. And Please support and, them. If you can, fact, they're uh, great right, right here on your table. I used to have mm. some, uh, yeah, I actually have some rentals some right video, now. Video boxes from uh, Cinephile. Head on over to their website. I think it's cinephilevideo.com. They might sell mm-hmm. some like t-shirts and things online, but they're a great store. They'll mail you yeah. t-shirts. Yeah, they uh, do, if, like, if you're in LA, make yeah. the trek. Uh, it's, yeah. it's totally worth it. Yeah, support them if you can, or any local video store uh, uh, if you can. But in some respects, yeah, a lot of people who only had the blockbusters or, this, or the Hollywood videos, a lot of streaming services are better than those. Mm-hmm. However, yeah, there's still a lot of limitations. There are studios that are putting together their own streaming services and they're withholding as much content as they can in order to only have it at their service and then their service doesn't even have it either, which pisses me the fuck off. Like, it sucks. So, on one hand, there's a lot of stuff available and there's a lot of stuff that's more readily available. There's a lot of uh, filmmakers who were, during the periods of... Uh, the heyday of video stores were still largely kept out of the industry. People of color, women, queer yeah, filmmakers. Yeah. There's a lot of those stories that weren't being told at the time, or if they were, they were being kept out of stores, and that sucks. Yeah. So, <laughs> Cheryl Dunier. <clears throat> there you go. Yeah. So, like, there's, and even that's, and, and uh, even Watermelon Woman is, she plays a woman who works at a video store. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, like, so there's, there's a lot that's better now. That's true. Um, it, it's what, kind, of, yeah. kind of sad. I was watching The Watermelon Woman, and uh, there was these scenes in the video store. I'm not looking at the actors. I'm looking at all the walls behind yeah. and all the videos. Yeah, I've done that too. But um, the 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 thing, though, is that there's always going to be – film is an art. Film is an art just like music is an art, just like books. and, and all, There's all these different art forms. And the majority of people are probably going to be pretty casual enthusiasts about any art form. Mm. They're going to know what they well, know. They're going to follow there's... what they're interested in. And they're going to listen to what people recommend to them. But they're not necessarily going to seek out everything exciting all the time. Well, and, and also consuming art used to be a, a much more active experience. Mm-hmm. There was a lot more travel involved. There was, yeah, to, go, yeah go, to actively going, go somewhere Going to, get to a theater, yeah. going to a stage, going to a library. Yeah. Uh, and uh, online living has discouraged that kind of behavior. Now you can get yeah. it all mail order to you. Just mail order all. Of it, or, or, again, or again, streaming. Yeah, and a lot yeah. of people are are getting it, and uh, you know, people living in in the hinterlands, if they have internet connection, can watch whatever's on Netflix, and that's, that's and really that's good. That's they, really really great. Maybe they didn't even have a video store before. Um, yeah, that's really really exciting. But yeah, but, so but, but that's also uh, anyway. Continue. My point is my point is this: uh, there will always be people who are more into a thing than others. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what that thing is. Could be cars, could be music, could be movies, could be food. And those people 
will always put in the effort. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, uh, it might not be for all of it equally. Sometimes they're only going to be interested in horror movies. Sometimes they're only going to be interested in one thing or another. But they're going to put in the effort. They're going to be excited. They're going to look. And they're going to seek. And if you look for things, you'll find them. Mm-hmm. You'll figure it out. You'll, you'll, you'll realize that, like, okay, well, I saw this movie on Netflix. It's really, really cool. But the director said in an interview that it was based on this other movie that I can't find anywhere in streaming. Now I have to find it. You will mm-hmm. find it. You will look. Yeah. If it's on a streaming service, you'll watch it there. If it's only on DVD or VHS, you'll find a copy. If you need to buy a VCR, you'll buy a VCR. <laughs> if it's only available on torrenting, well, shit. If that's literally the only way it's available, what else are you supposed to do? And then what happens is, much like people would go into a video store and say, I don't know what I'm in the mood for tonight. Help me out, person who's seen everything in the store. <laughs> People who are interested in film, casually or otherwise, eventually they're going to ask somebody for a recommendation, or they're going to be hear somebody talking about something, or read an article about it, or a podcast, hear overhear that, and they're going to say to themselves, "Oh, that sounds interesting. I will check that out." Well, and then, that, and that's it. what it is. It's all about we're trying to boost the voices, social media, podcasting, YouTube, mm-hmm. print, wherever we can. And try to get people who are excited about these things, who know a lot about it, to recommend the stuff that other people aren't hearing about. And then more of them will see it. And then then more people will discover that they do feel really passionate about it and they want to go on discovery. And then the cycle will continue. Well, um, I I think you're still taking the short view of what this question is. Okay. Um, because that, that's what we're doing now. And mm-hmm. we, we got all of our, our, our experiences from video stores. I'm just saying and, I think it's multi-generational, but okay. Well, but you know, when you know, video stores are gone, yeah. it's all streaming now. And I feel like um, you know, unless you're really active on social media, it's incredibly fragmented. And people are now encouraged to sort of follow their own bliss. The idea of absorbing art a little bit more randomly and getting a lot more variety in what you're consuming is a little... Is, less prevalent now than it was just several, just a couple of years ago. I don't know, man. I think, I I think, think some people um, are more likely to click on something random because they're not wholly committed to it. If I, if well, I, if I watch it for five minutes is, and not into it, I just watch something else. Yeah, so you're but, more willing to try something. Yeah, that, that's a good point. But I'm, I'm guessing that there's going to be less and less of this unification going on. And, and there's going to be a less of a consensus as to what the important movies are. And everybody's, going, everybody's going to have an individual experience as to what sort of films they're consuming. And as such, this idea of like a cabal of experts, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's already dying. Oh, sure. Uh, You know, we, we belong to critics bodies, but uh, I I feel like criticism as sort of this unified experience where uh, all the critics will be talking about the same movie is going to be less and less part of the conversation. Mm. Yeah. you know, as, as long as, you know, giant studios have a stranglehold on uh, the big popular blockbusters, those mm-hmm. things are going to be in the conversation. They'll use every advertising dollar they have in order to maintain that. But I think the idea of going to a critic to see, going to several critics to see how they feel about one individual mm-hmm. film mm-hmm. is going to be less and less common. And I think uh, one individual film might have one viewer. There's going to be so much content. Yeah, maybe. And there are going to be so many critics. That every critic will have their own individual experience. I think that's true, but I also think that the way people are finding their critics mm-hmm. through Rotten Tomatoes, through like articles about here's what the critics are saying about blah, mm-hmm. ends up taking all of those disparate voices and making them feel like a consensus anyway. And I yeah. feel like I feel like in some respects they're becoming more amorphously a single body, mm-hmm. and they shouldn't. 
These are all individual voices, and the individuality of those voices is is very very exciting. And, and, um, for, and this is why I'm grateful to Ben Meckler on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, go, Ben, ben, ben Meckler. He's he's not a critic, but he's just sort of a, a comedian uh, and, and yeah. a writer. But he noticed whenever, that he noticed that whenever like the embargo breaks on a big movie, all of the critics who have seen it early suddenly like at 9 p.m. on a Wednesday or whatever the fuck it is, whenever they saw the screening or, or whenever the embargo breaks on the screening. Mm. Anyway, uh, they're allowed to tweet about it. Yeah. And they're tweeting their general sort of views, and they say review well, to come or whatever. And so well, all of a sudden, t- there's a million. Typically, these are like for big commercial blockbusters, typically and the is. people who go to those are excited to be going, so they're going to say something very glowing about it. Typically, yeah, that's very. It's it's really rare that someone will come out. Well, I saw this really highly anticipated blockbuster. It's okay. Like yeah, that's, that's not that was, the vibe. You that got. was usually me, and I, yeah. <laughs> I always tried to make a point. Like when I did that, I was like, I listen. It doesn't matter that we saw a movie early. That's got to mean nothing to us now. It's just we saw the movie. And listen, it's a tweet or two. It's not a full review. But like just enthusiasm isn't interesting. An actual con- – this is an actually a more exciting moment to inform a conversation hmm. and to maybe get in on the ground floor of what we're going to take away from this. Yeah. And so for me, I'm I there there were times when I was glowing because it really was that good, but I would also like when the time came, I'd be like, you know, it kind of sucked. Ready Player One, like that kind of thing, you know, like <laughs> yeah, you, you have to be able to do that. But I digress. Ben Meckler, he finds out when people are doing that and like when those embargoes drop, and then he says ones like, "Yeah, I just got out of Ant Man," mm-hmm. and he'll do a long tweet talking about how great it is, using the exact same superlatives every other critic uses, but he'll throw in one random thing one that joke, is clearly like, like th- wrong. Three quarters of the way through the the tweet, yeah, uh, like, it's like I, I just saw Frozen two, and th- this is paraphrasing Ben Meckler. Yeah. I just saw Frozen two. The songs were that much were twice as memorable as Frozen. The the, the visuals were twice as impressive as Frozen. The auto cannibalism was twice as harrowing as in Frozen, <laughs> and inevitably, l- inevitably those compilation articles that you'll find in all of like the the modern uh, trade rags. Uh, online that usually just see some positive words, sweep them up and put them in a long list. We'll quote Ben Meckler. Mm-hmm. Here's what the critics are saying. Yeah, they Frozen just, they, 2 has auto-cannibalism. So, someone is always just putting up all the big ones, all the ones that get the most likes and retweets, mm-hmm. and they just throw his in, and then they don't really yeah, Some of them are, are like, his his relationship between Star Wars and Vidalia Onions is completely <laughs> baffling to me. I love it. Uh, um, the, all the Marvel ones have like... Just, he, he, he says like, oh yeah, and a, oh yeah, and a Cap and Bucky fuck a lot in this here's, one. It's like, I, I found I found a classic one. Right okay. <laughs> Looking uh, online now, at November 26, twenty eighteen, right when the embargo dropped on Aquaman. Mm. Aquaman is everything DC fans have been hoping for and more. Rollicking action, an amazing sense of world building, spellbinding musical numbers in which Aquaman wears clams as tap shoes, and a command performance from Jason Momoa. <laughs> DC has really righted the ship. The DCEU lives. And it goes on. There's, like a, there's a thread. With Aquaman, James Wan has crafted the world the likes of which we've never seen on screen before. It truly is an undersea Star Wars with a palpable sense of history. Hammerhead sharks with human legs who can pop, who can pop lock, and drop it. <laughs> and flat out incredible creature design. <laughs> Does yeah, Aquaman tie into the larger DCU? Hard to say. A little mention of the world outside of Atlantis, for better or worse. But what I know is it'll be a long time before I forget Volko's lyrical dance interpretation of Arthur Curry's Conception. <laughs> Best superhero <laughs> film since Dark Knight. 
Uh, ben Meckler hasn't watched the movie, by the way. No, of course not. <laughs> he's just sort of like getting a general. He sense. knows. He knows how these tweets have a formula, and mm. he's just throwing in some. And it works every time. Like he, someone he, always falls for it every time. Mm. It's amazing. Every single time. That's so great. Anyway, I forgot what, what the hell. we were talking about movies. Um. Mm. That was about where yeah. where people are going to get sort of their, well, their I consensus think, opinions from in the future. Well, I don't think it's about consensus opinions. I think it's about recommendations. I think it's yeah. about like who's going to help people find exciting stuff. And yeah. what I think it boils down to is the people who look and the people who want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I think podcasts are forming uh, are, are a big part of that now. YouTube shows are part of that now. Too many of the more popular ones are only interested in talking about like the big blockbusters right now, which sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, especially considering how many of those things could be used as a gateway to other older, more interesting, esoteric, significant artworks. Um, but so, but usually it's just based on well, let's talk about the mythos. Like, no, let's talk about the filmmaking. What about the mm-hmm. movies that inspired this? There's so much you can do. Um, that's why we started our episode zero podcast. Yeah. Man. Um. So yeah, I think it's up to us, and I think it's if if you want to be on that journey and you want to find all this stuff and you want to go searching for it and tell other people about it, whether you get paid for it or not, that's like whether you want to make that a career or just a thing you do for fun, you can be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it, basically. If we got rid of critics today, if there were no more critics' jobs, if we wouldn't take long before someone was like, oh, I don't know what to watch. Hey Dave, what should I watch? Well, you've seen a lot of movies, love- and then boom, film criticism is born again. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I digress. Let's move on. Uh, here's a letter from Adelaide. Hello, Adelaide. Um, mm-hmm. Hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Last week you talked about actors facing addiction while they work. I think we were talking about um, people were alcoholics. Asking, so people were talking so. about uh, film uh, actors who performed well under the influence of something. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it reminded me of a show I'm currently watching and following a podcast for the worldwide sensation Glee. I saw part of an episode. I saw the first season, couldn't get through a few mm-hmm. episodes, ended the second, and I gave up. Uh, recently, there was an episode discussed where one of the characters, Finn, played by Corey Montaith, has the revelation that his father didn't die as a soldier, but it, uh, did in fact die of a drug overdose. The showrunner, Ryan Murphy, self-admittedly added this twist when Montaith himself relapsed into his own personal drug addiction in an attempt to, quote, scare him straight. All of this being said, I want your thoughts on something like this. The idea of a creator changing the script around their actors in order to theoretically get the best performance. Would that work, and is it fair for the creative minds involved? Uh, thank you for reading this. Sorry if it's a depressing subject. I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Resident Gleek Adelaide. Uh, Adelaide, hi. Yeah, and that's a very sad story if you know about Corey Monteith. I think it's Monteith. That could be wrong. Oh, but it's EI. So it, whatever. It could, one or the other. Apologies but to, to One of us is wrong. Yeah. Uh, maybe both. Uh, but uh, that that... that that poor young man just, uh, uh, you know, he, he led too short a life and it's really, really sad. Um, but the question is about how filmmakers can sometimes uh, revolve stories around their actors' uh, real life uh, mm. events. Sometimes this happens very literally. Uh, you, I've lost track of how many television shows have had to rewrite storylines based on stuff like uh, our actor got pregnant, pregnant, you know, like, okay, well now we have to write a pregnancy into our show or make sure we don't do anything that requires us to see that they're pregnant because the character isn't. Or or even more dramatically when uh, one of the actors dies. Yes. Uh, When Phil Hartman died on news radio, they, they had to do a whole episode that was about all the characters missing them. And apparently it was really cathartic and and sad for the entire cast. Great episode of television, by the way, they handled it beautifully, but yeah, really, really no one wants to have to change that. Uh, in uh, at the end of uh, season three of Star Trek Voyager, they decided to write out the character of Kess, played yeah. by an actress named uh, Jennifer Lean, 
and uh, she didn't want to go. Yeah. It was a good role. She liked the role. She liked being on Star Trek, but the ratings were flagging, and for some reason they pinned it on her. They decided, well, no, what happened was they, they were going to They were going to cut one or one, either her or uh, uh, Harry Kim. Yeah, they, they were making room for the new, hopefully, breakout character, Seven of Nine, but they right. needed to remove someone from the main cast in order to do that. They were going to remove Harry Kim, but then Harry Kim wound up in TV Guide's list of the most beautiful people on television. Yeah. So they said, oh, just, well, we're not getting rid of the hunk, yeah, so yeah, we're going to get rid of... Garrett Wang is so attractive, we can't yeah. get rid of him. So then we're gonna cut Jennifer of, Lee. And, yeah, just a just uh, a rough situation. Yeah, around. and and she got a super raw deal. Yeah, but there's a scene where um she has she's leaving she's leaving the show, so she's leaving the ship in yeah. the the continuity of the story, and so she just sort of has a conversation with uh, Kate Mulgrew, who plays Captain mm-hmm. Janeway. And they're just like sitting there, like looking at each other crying. And it's like, the scene doesn't make any sense. It shouldn't be this emotional when you realize the actors are saying goodbye. They yeah. liked working together. Yeah. It means they, a lot. Oh, yeah. this is a, this is an example. You can see this in, um, uh, Furious seven. Mm. And I've talked about this before, uh, about how, uh, poor Paul Walker died, just, that he died at all is a tragedy. And he died in the middle of making this movie. So it was unfinished. And I interviewed James Wan about uh, this when it came out, and he was like, "Yeah, it's like trying to, it's like being asked all of a sudden to land a 747, and also it's on fire. If it <laughs> yeah. lands, you did a good job. Like it, it, if it movie works at all, he was like, just was super happy about it. And people were really happy with the way that movie turned oh. out, but the the way that that movie shifted around Paul Walker's passing, and the movie became a goodbye to Paul Walker when it was not intended to be." Hmm. So the whole movie ends up coming across like a eulogy for this character who in the context of the franchise doesn't even die. <laughs> Characters die in that movie mm. and they've given a less tearful goodbye than Brian who is retiring. And that's because in real life we had to say goodbye to him. We had no choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's that's uh, that's another uh, one. Oh, this also works in other ways too. Um, the uh, I think it's in the introduction to the published version of the screenplay to Ed Wood. Mm. Have you ever seen Ed Wood? It's a great movie. Uh, it's about uh, the so-called worst filmmaker ever made. Yeah, <laughs> ever worst, made. Ever, ever, worst filmmaker. Uh, ever in, made in, by in, his parents? Yeah, yeah. worst filmmaker in, in, in movie history, mm. uh, Ed, allegedly. Edward, Edward D. Wood yeah, Jr. I, I actually wouldn't give him that title, but whatever. Z-grade schlock in the yeah. 1950s. But the whole idea is he, was, he never gave up. He was really, really plucky, and the people around him really liked him. Mm. And uh, the, the screenwriters, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, uh, were really interested in writing a, a script about him. And they heard that maybe Tim Burton would be interested in such a project. So when they wrote it, they specifically wrote it to focus on the relationship between this young filmmaker and this aging horror star whom he idolized, uh, Ed Wood and uh, uh, Bella Lugosi. And one of the reasons they did that is because Tim Burton had a somewhat similar relationship with Vincent Price Mm -hmm. when when, uh, 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 Tim Burton was just coming up in the industry. Vincent Price uh, did the voiceover narration for one of his early short films Mm -hmm. and then uh, had a small role in uh, Edward Scissorhands before he passed away, um, and they knew that like this would connect with Tim Burton, and so maybe he would understand like here's the heart of this story, and so we'll really emphasize that, and they did, and Tim Burton loved it, and apparently they didn't even do another draft; they just <laughs> shot that one. Um, so, and that movie overly romanticizes that relationship between Edward and oh, Lugosi, yeah. but it was specifically done so that. The, the script would find someone who understood what they were getting at. Yeah, it's, so there's, it's, that's another example. It, it's a great movie, but yeah, it, it yeah. sugarcoats a lot of, a lot yeah. of history. Uh, there's, there's scenes that were cut from that movie that 
sort of focus on sort of the sadder moments of his life and his yeah. alcoholism that they cut out because they wanted it to be a little bit brighter. Yeah, they made their uh, I'm trying to think of instances I know about, though, when that happened with actors, like mm. where directors would, like... Um. I mean, s- s- like, say something untrue or lie to an actor, manipulate an actor in some sort I mean, of I'm way. Say, I, mean, I can think about it happening in the movie The Stuntman. Hmm. Uh, hmm. I'm reminded of when Alfred Hitchcock uh, hired... Oh, who wrote Psycho? Um, Robert Block. No, 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 the book, the movie. Was it uh, jo- Joseph hmm. DiStefano? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, apparently he went with that screenwriter because he was also, like, he was, like, in therapy and dealing with issues with his own mom. So okay. he was like, oh, you're perfect. Let's do it. <laughs> you got the cake. Right. Yeah, but, um, but, but again, you're t- these are all screenwriter stories. I know, I know. I'm, that, but that's what I know better. Yeah. I'm just, I'm trying to think. It's bound to be, because yeah. it's difficult because not always, that kind of rewriting process isn't always common knowledge. Mm. Um, hmm. I know uh, there are instances where, um, Directors try to get performances from actors by uh, not necessarily lying to them or manipulating them, but by like actually startling them. I know oh, yeah. uh, Friedkin was notorious about this. He liked to, if somebody wasn't giving a good enough performance, uh, mm. like they weren't jumping or they weren't scared, he'd like fire guns on set. Oh, uh, like, uh, like, Cronenberg um, did that in The mm. Dead Zone. Every time uh, Christopher Walken t- held someone's hand and could see the future mm. to make sure that the startling was real, because a gunshot you're never prepared for, yeah. he would like fire a starter pistol or something. And yeah. like, bang! Okay, well, uh, there you Friedkin, go. Friedkin, I bet, was shooting real yeah. bullets because he's kind of yeah. a maniac. Yeah. But, Friedkin uh, also, I think, kept the uh, set on The Exorcist extraordinarily cold. Well, in the... Uh, yeah. In the Exorcist scenes, it was supposed to be cold in the room. That's part of the Blatty novel. Right. So he just refrigerated the whole set. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's stories from the set, like it, in between takes, he would play like really loud music just so everybody's constantly on edge. Um, I, I don't know. I actually still don't know if this is apocryphal, but um, in uh, going back to Psycho, uh, Alfred Hitchcock said uh, Janet Lee wasn't frightened enough in the shower mm. and evidently asked somebody to turn off uh, the warmth in the water at a certain moment. So mm. she got hit with like cold water and was like was really startled. startled. Yeah. But I, again, I don't know how true that is. Yeah. Sometimes uh, these, sometimes that, these that, things are apocryphal. That sounds like a, a, that could be just a story. And sometimes the things that directors do to manipulate their actors mm. are atrocious. And listen, you can call Stanley Kubrick a great filmmaker if you want what he did to Shelley Duvall on the set of The Shining was completely yeah, unnecessary. She, she has she has yeah. nothing nothing but bad things to say about yeah. her experience shooting The Shining. Yeah, she, he in order to give her allegedly in order to give her that frightened performance, he was just extraordinarily cruel to her mm. and made her feel completely isolated and alone. And she had enough problems as it is. Uh, mm. That's it's really shitty. Mm. Uh, uh, th- that kind of she thing is, is completely. Un- Here's the deal, and I, I method acting is fine, but on some level, it's called acting. <laughs> you don't need to, if you if you need to do all that shit, you're doing something wrong. You're you're not you're not directing them very well. I, Come on. I, I will not bemoan an actor their craft. They're no, like, their well, actor just, maybe uh, not, but a director's manipulations in order to get a good mm. performance. Like yeah, if you're going to be a, just a piece of shit about it, you don't have to do that. Well, and some actors and directors uh, even thrive if if it's sort of a mutual understanding that they're going to thrive off of their hatred for one another, mm-hmm. then that's that sometimes works. Uh, but it's got to be mutual, the, though. You watch gotta... the documentary "My Best Fiend" at some yeah. point. It's about the relationship between Werner Herzog and the actor Klaus Kinski, mm-hmm. uh, both maniacs in their own way, Very and, much not, so. and not maniacs who fit well together. No. They hated each other. Yeah. Uh, they're during the filming of Fitzcarraldo, um, the uh, the local talent that they had to hire, who was like help pushing the ship over a hill, went to Herzog and, and offered to murder Kinski. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you know we can we, 
we'll kill him for you. Well, we will. We'll just do that. It's like, yeah. And and, and Herzog's like, uh, uh, no, 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 no. Well, we we need him. We need him. Mm. What? No, no, no. Yeah. He like he considered it for a second. Yeah. The. Uh, yeah. The, the, yeah, I'm sure, listen, the bottom line is these things happen all the time. Actors, directors are, are working together. They, they should always be on the same page. And also it's responsibility for a director to make sure that they're taking care of everyone on the set the way everyone on the set needs to be taken care of. Because just because one actor thrives on a certain amount of like antagonism, like that spawns, like some people like in sports will like benefit from like, a, yeah, you're never going to make it. Yeah. And that makes yeah. them want to fight okay. harder. Uh, but that's called, not everyone. That's not everyone. Is it's it? called abusive motivation. And yeah, it's called I, abusive for a reason. I, I think it's just straight up abuse, but I also know some people who are like I actually a, a, athletes that, yeah. who like say like, that's what makes me work out. That's yeah. what like in the gym, I need that motivation. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that's fine for you, but you can't assume that that's right for everybody. Yeah. And in a team dynamic, you definitely can't treat everyone that way. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's tricky, but yeah, but we can't think of more examples off the top of our head, which is annoying, but, uh, and what shit, uh, uh, Bride of the Monster. He rewrote some of the dialogue in that movie to, in order to focus more on the fact that uh, Bela Lugosi mm. felt estranged from his oh, own country. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Boom. He got. A, he got. A, he was wanting to get a better performance and more yeah, emotional yeah. villain out of his character, so he <laughs> wrote it around what Bela Lugosi had told them about uh, immigrating from America, the, right to America. Yeah. Sorry, the jungle is my home. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, I digress. You want, to, you want to do another take? Looks like Tor Johnson hit the door. No, I like it. It's real. <laughs> Let's move on. It, it, Let's do um, one, one more letter. One, one more, more letter. letter. Here's a letter from uh, Shunak. Hello, Shunak. Hi, um, Shunak. Uh, hello, friends. My question is related to your, uh, your reviews you write online for different trades. Hmm. You both mentioned uh, you have been quoted on movies promotions. Does the studio need your permission or the permission from the trade you wrote for to use the quote? Cheers. Uh, okay, simple question. Oh, yeah, a little, little, little bit of insider baseball. The um, answer is technically no. They, they don't, but they usually ask. They don't have to ask, but mm. I think it's good form. They typically do. Yeah. It's good form. Can, because uh, it, it's been, been a bit of a problem when uh, some critics' uh, quotes are taken out of context yeah. or fragments are taken away. Or they, uh, a lot, some studios will try to, like if you'll see an ellipsis in the middle. Yeah, like it's, it's the dot, dot, dot best movie of the yeah. year. Anything could be in that dot, dot, dot. It so could be not. The best movie of the year. Some but. some critics' words have been manipulated to say the, even the opposite of what they said. So, mm-hmm. t- just to keep their noses clean, studio mm-hmm. publicists like to go straight to the critic, mm-hmm. say, "Here's what we're going to quote. Here's the actual wording we're going to use. Is that okay?" Yeah, I've, I've actually just had one of those really recently, and and yeah, it's really simple. Mm-hmm. It's like they'll say, "Hey, quote." It'll be like subject line, quote approval for whatever movie review, and then it's like, "Hey." We read your review. We would like to quote it in the in our mm-hmm. press release or whatever. Uh, and it, here's the quote. May we please get quote approval? And usually I'll say yes because usually I, if I said it, I meant it. Mm-hmm. And that's accurate. Every once in a while, I feel like it's being like the, the phrase as it got chopped out is not quite the intention that I meant from that turn of phrase. Mm-hmm. And in a vacuum, it comes across a little different. Yeah. Um, like if I said... Let, let's say I, I reviewed a movie and I said uh, the cinematography is terrific, mm. but I also didn't like the rest of the movie. But they, but they you can't just, just click put, out the word terrific. You can't just yeah. put terrific exclamation point says William Bibiani of mm. of so and so because that implies that I said that about the whole movie. I'll say no. If you want to use my bit about the cinematography being terrific, you knock yourself out. But I cannot give you approval for that. Um, but I've, it has happened that every once in a while that I've been quoted and I was not informed. 
Mm. Uh, and it's usually been okay because I'm like, I did say that. Yeah. Um, but it, it is a little annoying that I didn't know that was going to happen. Mm. Uh, but that being said, the whole idea of being quoted is weird. On one hand, it's kind of cool because like a movie, theoretically at least, a movie you genuinely liked and want to other people to see mm. is hopefully, yes. it's getting a testimonial. You get to be part of the testimonial for it and you get to actually support this movie that you theoretically support. Right. Now, on one hand, that's cool because it's like, oh, cool. Maybe someone will see that I liked this movie and they'll say to themselves, oh, I'll give this a chance. And in particularly, that's exciting if it's like a low budget independent movie that needs to find an audience. If it's for like a big blockbuster, it's not, they didn't need me. <laughs> they didn't need Whitney. They didn't need me. They didn't need nothing. They, they were going to find it. Um, but it's, it is, it is the first time it happens. It's kind of neat. And the later times you realize that they're just trying to sell a movie. Yeah. You're, you're, you're the, part of a publicity machine. It, yeah. it becomes really unromantic real fast. Yeah. Like it's, it, you'll notice that they have their favorites. Hmm. They're people who, you know, have become sort of reliable in the industry. And like, you see their name and it means something. Peter, Peter Travers. Travers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, Peter Travers, Travers gets quoted all the time. Peter Travers <laughs> is, has long been the film critic for Rolling yeah. Stone, and and I admire, I, I respect Peter Travers. Sure. Uh, now I never agree with Peter Travers, but yeah. you know I, I respect the the place he holds in in our field. Sure, sure. He's a, but what, he yeah. uh, he is. I, I don't know why they keep going to him. I guess just his language, the way yeah. he uses, like it's sounds always, like good publicity. It's almost always something that's quotable in there, even yeah, if the so, movie isn't great. So, um, so, so, so there you Peter go. Travers is quoted an awful lot. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've been quoted. Uh, I've, the, probably the most prominent one is I'm quoted on the back cover of the DVD slash Blu-ray for Frozen. There you go. That, uh, yeah, a, lot that, of, a lot of people bought that. A lot of people saw that. So your your name it. is I'm in a lot in of there. people's homes. I'm in there. I don't think I'm on any other DVD. I think I might be on one other DVD, but I can't remember what it is. Um, I, I've, been in a, I've been on a few posters and things, but um, yeah, that's that's about you've that. You've seen. You've probably seen my name flash past in like a montage of mm-hmm. stuff. I remember when... I was in the um, trailer for Whiplash. I remember that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, that, that one I was excited remake, about. I actually uh, supported that movie. Like I was like, ooh, cool. Someone might see it. I was really bummed out because I wrote a review of the remake of Superfly, a film that I actually kind of liked. And... Um, and they they showed like four star or four stars or whatever mm. I gave my rating to, in this like big field of all these these other quotes and mine's mm. like down in the corner. It's like mm. oh I'm just nothing there. You know every once in a while it's weird. Like I'll actually be like really excited about a movie mm. and I'll say really nice things about a movie and I actually think this movie is great. No one else did. And I'll actually say like this give like this really glowing review of something like I don't know like uh, the Mortal Engines which I liked more than almost anybody. Mm. Um, and then I'll and then the, the DVD will come out, and I'll see the DVD, and it has like no quotes on it, and I'm like, you know, there was at least one glowing review. I know you had. The, I'm not <laughs> offended. I'm not, yeah, I'm not offended. I don't really care, but it's weird to me that like you had room for a quote here, and you didn't even bother putting it on. Uh, that that's always weird to me when I know the quotes exist and they just don't even bother because they've kind of given up, I guess, yeah. or they feel like no one's going to believe that quote because it didn't do well. I don't know. But um, anyway, but yeah, that's how it works. It's it's considered polite to ask, uh, and ninety like more than nine times out of ten they do. Uh, mm-hmm. But it has happened that I have been surprised to find out I've been quoted. Uh, but yeah, it's generally considered very bad form to do that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, anyway, that is it for we've got mail this week. Thank you everybody for writing in. Yeah, um, for sure. Really, kind of big week, like a lot of emotional stuff. And, <laughs> Um, but, uh, thank you everybody. It means a lot to us that you're listening, that you want to write in, that you want to be part of the conversation. Um, 
If you want to uh, write into a future episode, uh, again, the email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Uh, same as before, I'll write into the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Thank you again mm-hmm. to uh, Canadian Keith for this lovely volume. Yeah, a few people have sent us things, and that's really, really nice. You don't have to do that. You can just send us a letter in an envelope if you want. We're not asking for gifts. Yeah, no, we no, just- no. It's it's send nice. us a letter. It's yeah. really, really nice, but like we we we're not asking for stuff. But it, that's really, really cool, and that is a gorgeous book. And I'm really glad that Whitney might have an opportunity to read it finally. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, and of course you can also contact us. Otherwise, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where you can vote for future episodes of some of our shows. You can have a, a lot of exclusive podcasts about uh, Batman, Star Trek, the Academy Awards, we do commentary tracks. Uh, we just scheduled our next online hangout. We do one of those a month. So if you want to actually like talk to us like in person, Patreon is a way to do that. Uh, and... Um, um, there's other stuff as well. Other things besides. Other things besides. Uh, we, I, we have a, I, have, I have a soap store with M. Lapis da Silva, Salt Gat Soap. Uh, head on over to uh, Etsy or check us out on social media uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Salt Cat Soap. You can find a link to the store there. Uh, we just added a bunch of stuff and we're actually putting together some really cool stuff for Halloween that should be debuting pretty soon. Uh, but also, there's a deal. Anything you buy uh, from the store, you get. Uh, anytime you buy from the store, you get a 10% off coupon on a future purchase. Nice. So, holidays are coming. Maybe uh, maybe get some soap. Anyway, uh, Whitney, have I forgotten anything? Um, if you have, I forgot it too. Cool. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. Whitney.